Um, so the government can only deprive citizenship from people with a dual na nationality or those who have been naturalised or those with the potential for dual nationality. Um, so if the government believes that you could be a citizen from somewhere else, they could strip your citizenship. Um, so even if you haven't left Britain before, those with dual nationality or the possibility of it uh, face the prospect of losing their citizenship. If you grow up here your entire life. Uh, this could be your home, your family could live here and still you could be deprived of your citizenship if you come from somewhere else in, in the government's eyes. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host Nathan. The Nationality on Borders Bill received royal assent and became an act of parliament on the 28th of April. 2022. Over the next few episodes, we'll focus on particular clauses in the Act, which campaigners for refugees, human rights and equality have been vociferously objecting to. In parts, they had the effect of getting concessions and amendments in the House of Lords, but ultimately the Tory majority prevailed and this Act has now become law. Today, we'll focus on one of the most contentious clauses, which is Clause 9 of the Act, which deals with a sacred and serious issue, which is that of deprivation of citizenship. Now, the data is not readily available on how many people have been stripped of their citizenship, but according to the to Free Movement, which is on freemovement.org.uk, their analysis shows that at least 464 people have been stripped of their British citizenship since the law allowing it was relaxed 15 years ago. Home office figures, they say, show 175 people being deprived of their citizenship on national security grounds. A further 289 people have been stripped of citizenship because of fraud. Before that, none of this had ever happened since 1973. So between 1973 and 2006, you find no one at all having their citizenship stripped. So Clause 9 amends a long-standing position under the British Nationality Act of 1981 that the Home Secretary must notify individuals before taking away their citizenship. So with that sort of background, you can see how serious an issue this is. And to help us understand the implications of this change in the law, I'm delighted to be joined by Alba Kapoor, who's a senior policy manager at the Runnymede Trust, the UK's leading race equality think tank. So welcome, Alba. Hi, thank you for having me. No, to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So let's get straight into it. What does this change in the law mean? And take us through how the law used to operate and what will change now? And who is it likely to impact most? Mm. So, I mean, as you alluded to in your introduction, citizenship deprivation has been around for decades, uh, obviously in some more inactive periods, and now we see it happening more and more. Mm -hmm. And this clause, what it does is it enhances those powers. Um, it will grant the Home Office and the Home Secretary the power to deprive a person's citizenship without them even being told. So it makes it easier for the government as it effectively denies the right of appeal for someone who has lost their citizenship by shrouding it in secrecy, because mm. you don't know that it's happened. Um, so 
the government still has to comply to some international rights obligations, mm -hmm. which says that you can't render a citizen stateless. Um, so the government can only deprive citizenship from people with a dual na nationality or those who have been naturalized or those with the potential for dual nationality. Um, so if the government believes that you could be a citizen from somewhere else, they mm. could strip your citizenship. Um, so even if you haven't left Britain before, those with dual nationality or the possibility of it uh, face the prospect of losing their citizenship. You could grow up here your entire life. Mm -hmm. um, this could be your home. Your family could live here and still you could be deprived of your citizenship if you come from somewhere else in, in the government's eyes. So we know who this is disproportionately going to impact. It's black and ethnic minority people. It's children of immigrants um, and anyone who is a tie to a different nation across the globe. Um, so I think, I mean, there's some stats on this that two in five people from uh, black and ethnic minority groups uh, are likely to be eligible for this deprivation of citizenship. And that's in contrast with just one in 20 people who are categorized as white. Um, so that really kind of puts it starkly the extent to which this is a racialized issue. Mm -hmm. And it's much more likely that if you are black or brown in this country, and if you're already suffering from a whole host of other structural inequalities in your way, this is something that could affect you too. Um, so it kind of reinforces policies that will lead to two tiers of citizenship, uh, distinguishing between those who are permanent citizens um, and those who could have their citizenship stripped from them. Its symbolic pertinence and importance is really is a really essential part of understanding what this clause means. It has a real symbolic weight to it about who is welcome in Britain and who is not. Um, and I just wanted to add where this all sits. You know, where does this clause come in? It's part of the Nationality and Borders Now, unfortunately, Act. Mm -hmm. um, and it's part of a broader signal uh, from the government about Britishness, who is British, who is not. You know, the Nationality and Borders Act in and of itself has brought about a, a new understanding and, well, actually a new assault on refugee law as human rights organizations across the country have called it, uh, basically saying that there are two types of asylum seekers, mm -hmm. one that deserves to be treated well and the others that don't. Uh, we again know this to be racialized. And this uh, clause nine, this two types of citizenship fits into that model as well. So there's this broader context that needs to be understood about what the Nationality and Borders Act does generally, mm -hmm. as well as what this clause does to black and ethnic minority citizens, to refugees of color as well, and to asylum seekers of color too. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a sort of introduction to to where it all sits. I mean, th this, this, is, this is really extraordinary, Alba, because I, I can't understand what the motivation for that would be. Why, why on earth would the government think that it would be appropriate to remove someone's citizenship and not notify them at all? So what, what if they're abroad and then they turn up back at, at Heathrow and they're told that you can't come back in? How, how does that operate? How do they expect this to operate practically? Have you, have you, has your organization done any sort of research on how they'll apply this? Because it, it doesn't feel like it can be applied really practically unless it's a situation of this will apply in exceptional circumstances so i mean what's potentially most shocking is that in some circumstances this has already been applied so not only has the deprivation of citizenship law been applied mm -hmm. but 
In certain cases, it's shown that the Home Secretary failed to inform people whose citizenship were being was being deprived from them already. And one of the things that this Clause 9 does is it retrospectively uh, validates those unlawful orders from the Home Secretary. So, I mean, we know how this, this is done because the Home Secretary has already done it. And now she's covered her back. Now, now the Home Office has covered their back, rather, um, in, in making these decisions in the first place and not informing people and failing to protect their rights, rights before they were deprived from them. Um, and so this is you know, it's already it's already happened. And, and as you say, it's something that really limits the power of appeal. It limits your legal rights to appeal to stay in this country, to have the right to be with your family. Uh, you know, citizenship is a status upon which those rights are built um, and they are so fundamental to, to them being enacted. Um, and so it's, you know, the, the crude reality of it is, is it's already happened and this law makes it even easier. I mean, what's extraordinary from what you say there is that they could retrospectively, when they've done something unlawful, so if they've unlawfully stripped you of your citizenship, this act now validates that unlawful act. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the public law office who says say that this sort of tramples on the rule of law. And I'm no public law expert, but it certainly feels stunning that something that is deemed unlawful and wrong mm -hmm. uh you know under the under the eyes of the law is then validated by a law passed years later it seems to undo um any individual complaints in this area for anyone who experienced that and who mm -hmm. was done wrong in that in that experience they no longer have a claim i mean it's absolutely shocking um, and it's really, it's something that should be worrying from a precedent setting perspective too. You know, where could this go? What does this mean? What else can be pardoned effectively uh, by just a new law being come in? So I think that's exactly right. It is this, it is this very scary uh, place to be in relation to the rule of law. So let's, let's broaden this out. The, this, this act's reach is far wider than what the previous um, wording of the statute used to say. So who else could get caught up in this net of their citizenship being stripped? Because as we saw from those statistics, the government's um, argument is that mostly they're stripping citizenship away from people who've been involved in terrorism or fraud. Where else could this go? Because minorities in this country will feel targeted for some of the smallest indiscretions? I guess the short answer here is that we don't know. And actually, that's a really scary thing. Um, there's This is an executive order. You know, it's an, ex sorry, an executive power. Um, and it can be used as the Home Secretary sees fit with limited power for judicial review. Um, and what we've already seen is that it's been applied in a way described by even Baroness Varsi herself as devastating in relation to uh, Britain's traffic to Syria, for example. Um, so we've already seen that the way in it's been it's been applied has received widespread criticism in the past. And so we don't know where it could go in the future. We don't know who could be impacted in the future. What we do know is that the uh, deprivation of citizenship laws themselves are being enforced, they're being enhanced, 
um, and they are being enforced at an increasing rate year by year. Um, you know, there was a 600% rise in the use of citizenship deprivations between 2016 and 2017. Um, that's no random act. That's part of something that's deeply worrying about the trend of citizenship deprivation, stripping of citizenship uh, mm. to be used as a punitive policy, as a punitive uh, way of engaging with wrongdoings. Um, and I think, I mean, the other thing to say in this context is that uh, we know that it's kind of been overwhelmingly being used in the context of nationality and security and terrorism. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, it's look the APPG on traffic Britons in Syria did this inquiry, which showed that UK authorities failed to protect vulnerable women who've been trafficked by ISIS. Mm. Um, and that in depriving their citizenship in the past, they were actually being punished for the crimes of their traffickers. This is the finding of an all-party parliamentary group, a cross-party group of MPs. Mm. This isn't a sort of uh, uh, outside of mainstream opinion. So what we know is in the past that it's been done unfairly. Um, and so we just, in the future, it, it, we, we could see these powers being expanded even further. And that's what's scary is we don't know where it could go. And there isn't those checks and balances there to make sure that it's done in the right way. Or, I mean, should it be done at all? Probably not, no. But with that being said, even, even if this, this law is enacted, there aren't checks and balances on um, the Home Secretary to, to, to engage with this. Okay, so, so let's, let's talk about that, about whether it should be, should be done at all. What, what is yeah. the Runnymede Trust view? Should, are there any circumstances where you would say, yes, we think that that is a seriously grave crime that that person has committed, and that if they are a dual national, that perhaps, yes, they should be stripped of their citizenship? Depriving someone of their citizenship should never be a punitive way of dealing with a wrongdoing. It's not to say that some people have done grave and wrong things, mm -hmm. but it is to say that using citizenship as a tool and arbiter of a good person versus a bad person is wrong. It's not how we should be using the systems in this country. We have a criminal justice system that is meant to work in the eyes of the government, although there are lots of question marks over that. Hmm. But we have a criminal justice system in place. We are meant to have local authority support in place. We are meant to have systems and structures to help people who are vulnerable of being trafficked, for example, or who may be committing wrongdoings within this country. Hmm. What de deprivation on, of citizenship does is it abandons uh, the government's commitment towards its citizens, and it abandons any sense of responsibility from the systems that are meant to be there for all of us. Um, yeah. So I think we would always argue uh, that citizenship should never be used, deprivation of citizenship should never be used as a way of punishing a person. Right. It, it does seem like it, it will operate like a blunt instrument, doesn't it? Um... But what's, what's key, and what I really want to find out from you, is how much or to what extent do you think race will be a factor in, in how this law is applied? So I think the first thing to say is when news of this clause broke, it met widespread 
anger and concern from groups engaged in race equality work, including ours. Mm. And I think it's clear that that connection is not immediately there. Um, but what the point that we've been trying to make is that the people who are most likely to face the prospect of losing their citizenship are those who are black and ethnic minority. They are, as I said earlier, the children of immigrants. Um, they are those with a connection to nations across the globe. In essence, the government is saying to people like us, people who are ethnic minorities, um, who may have different connections to different countries across the globe, that you should not take your citizenship for granted. That your behavior, the way that you act in society, will be judged as part of whether you are worthy to hold on to your citizenship. And we are really concerned about that. And I mean, I, I read some statistics earlier, but I think it's worth referring back to them mm. about the fact that those from Black and ethnic minority groups are much more likely to be eligible for this disproportion, this uh, to this de deprivation of citizenship than mm. their white counterparts. It's there, it bears out in the statistics. It's not just conjecture. We know this to be the case. Um, so that is why people are calling it a racist law. Mm. Do you know what's difficult about this? What's difficult about it is if if you guys who who study policy are saying there aren't any checks and balances mm. and this is an executive power, what are dual nationals going to feel like in this country and minoritized people? How are they going to feel? Will they want to participate in public life? So say, for example, the Black Lives Matter protests um, mm -hmm. have caused all sorts of feelings in Britain because people generally don't want to talk about race and, and the, the issues that it brought to the fore. Do you think that people will sort of like take a step back now and be very careful about what they participate in if they come from minoritized communities? I mean, I've read and I've heard and I've engaged with people who are saying just this, that they are feeling worried about the activism work that they're doing in light of laws like this. Hmm. We don't know where it's going. I think we shouldn't inflate these concerns and we should support and provide solidarity to people who need that right now in relation to the work that they're doing. Uh, and I think it's, you know, if they are expressing these concerns, they they need to be listened to. Um, and I, I, I think you know, what you touched on earlier around how do people feel about this is a really important question because it does sit there with you. It does sit there that there is something enshrined in law which separates your citizenship with the citizenship of someone else, almost on the basis of who you're related to. And, and that is something that feels really scary if you do come from a black or ethnic minority background and you are taught in different ways throughout your life that in some ways you aren't welcome in this country. And so, I mean, I amongst others at the Running Me Trust and beyond have had quite an emotional reaction to these to this law. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's not relevant. I think that really matters to talk about how people feel in relation to laws like this, which are set to really worry and concern us yeah so and what what else comes with this with this legislation because what we've seen broadly but what this government are, are are broadly trying to do is to restrict a lot of 
right of appeal, whether it's judicial review and, and those type of things. What sort of appeal processes will be available here and will they be time limited, crucially? So I think it's important to contextualize this even further and say, you know, where are we in terms of the rights of black and ethnic minority people? And, you know, we at the Runnymede Trust have been sounding the alarm about the impact of oncoming legislation in relation to the rights of black and ethnic minority groups, mm. uh, the impact on access to legal aid in relation to things like appeal that you're mentioning, mm -hmm. um, and also thinking about uh, the proposed overhaul of the Human Rights Act, you know, something that in and of itself has provided such value for black and ethnic minority groups who are experiencing violations of their rights, specifically for migrants, mm -hmm. uh, specifically for people who rely on things like Article 8, the right to private and family life, and Article 14 rights around uh, discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what this broader landscape does, this broader policy landscape does, is undermine those rights and it undermines what black and ethnic what redress black and ethnic minority groups have in court um around uh, their right to appeal etc so contained within clause nine there are limitations on these rights but it's also happening much more broadly as well yeah you talk there about the the broader context of what this government are bringing in so in the queen's speech yesterday um we now know that they're proposing a a bill of rights and yeah. bills of rights generally just protect citizens and they don't they don't insulate people who are not born here who don't have citizenship do you think this the the whole landscape the legal landscape as regards minoritized people because the human rights act has protected a lot of people who are refugees yeah. and people who arrive here to claim asylum that their life here won't really have any legal recourse. Yeah, we're we're deeply worried about the proposed Bill of Rights and the repeal of the Human Rights Act. Um, a number of things that the consultation proposals included really rang alarm bells. Uh, things like the introduction of a permission stage uh, in bringing a Human Rights Act case to court. So this basically means that if an ethnic minority person uh, has been discriminated against Against by their local authority, they would have to show that they've experienced a something called significant disadvantage to bring a case to court. Um, that's a sort of unsustainable barrier to jump to access, first of all, a right to claim your case in court. That's really worrying. Um, yeah. And it's been explicitly articulated as attempt to weed out so-called frivolous claims um, yeah. by the by the Justice Secretary. Um, we're quite clear that any notion that an effort to assert your human rights is frivolous is something that we should really contest um, and really be wary of. And um, it also kind of introduces something called a responsibilities framework, uh, which would kind of assess different classes of claimants based on their past behavior. Who is most likely to be disproportionately impacted by that? Ethnic minority groups, refugees, and migrants who are already experiencing disproportionalities and disparities within the criminal justice system. Um, it weakens at every level access to justice, mm. and that will have a real impact on migrant and refugee groups. It will have a real impact on BME citizens as well. Um, and as I mentioned, I mean, the Human Rights Act has had 
real importance in providing protections for asylum seekers and refugees who are themselves particularly vulnerable to human rights violations. Um, I mean, if we think about the sort of role that the Human Rights Act had in uh, some of the Windrush scandal and realizing justice for some Windrush victims, um, that's something that we should always recall as a clear example of how essential the Human Rights Act and cases brought under the Human Rights Act have been. Um, so it's really, really disturbing that this is being successively weakened and weakened. Um, and as you say, you know, we sit in this broader context as well that's really worrying. Um, you know, the Queen's speech alone contained no real access, uh, uh, no real action on uh, the cost of living crisis. It mm -hmm. contained the proposals around Bill of Rights. It contained further laws um, and further proposals that will enhance the already draconian Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, um, which I'm sure you you've talked about before in your podcast. Mm. Um, so there's a lot there that feels like a real uh, attack on the rights of black and ethnic minority groups, really. Yeah, so it's it's sort of like a normalization of a, of a two tier system. But Absolutely. but Alba, there there will be people out there who who listen to this podcast who who sort of dissent about mm -hmm. the tone of the Ronnie Mead Trust. So yeah. you'll you'll have people like like Tony Sewell, yeah. who who authored the 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 race report. He will suggest things like this, which he said in that report. There are still real obstacles, and there are also practical ways to surmount them. But that becomes much harder if people from ethnic minority backgrounds absorb a fatalistic narrative that says the deck is permanently stacked against them. So these people will come for, for the Runnymede Trust and say that you're stoking divisions in, in society, or you you're egging on the culture war people what what do you say to people who'll say that about this particular clause i would say that we are a think tank we are primarily and uh, totally actually committed to evidence-based research mm -hmm. uh, we produce and think about specific issues in relation to black and ethnic minority groups on the basis of evidence and our an analysis of that evidence. Mm -hmm. And what I have talked about today in relation to this clause, uh, what we continue to talk about in relation to the policy issues that we are campaigning on, thinking about and engaging with, um, is always in connection to that evidence. It's always connection in connection to the basis that we have uh, engaged from people that we talk to in the research that we do. Mm -hmm. But also in terms of of the uh, sort of more uh, thorough, profound, and deep work that we've done over the past five decades on this, um, this is not the product of a sort of charity industrial complex intent on waging a culture war, as we've been told in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, we're actually a small organisation that is fundamentally committed to the rights of black and ethnic minority groups and won't be deterred by those people who deem structural racism as a concept not worth thinking about because the structural change that that entails is too scary for them. Um, and we will always fight for that structural change. Right. Um, that's, that's interesting because what the government says that this clause will do and, and how it will be applied uh, 
is that this power, clause 9, is a narrow power that is rarely used and only ever done so in the interests of national security, diplomatic relations, or in the public interest. Are they wrong? So firstly, it's important to say that the use of citizenship deprivation powers has sharply increased since Mm -hmm. 2010. So it may be a narrow power now, but it's rapidly expanding. I mentioned that the use of the power is soared by 600% from 2016 to 2017. It has continued to be used since since then it has continued at a a very high level in comparison to before 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, And let's not forget that it's impacted hundreds of people rendered without citizenship, many with families and with longstanding connections to the UK. Mm. Um, I don't think that could be unblinkingly ignored as the government may want want to do. And I think also this also kind of presumes that this has all been done in the public interest and in a fair way in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's not just me who's saying this, that it hasn't. It's think people like the all-party parliamentary group on traffic Britons in Syria, who I mentioned earlier, and whose report was really worried about the way in which the deprivation of citizenship had been used in a blanket way. Um, I think the co-chairs of the APG said um, there is no decency, justice or security in abandoning British victims of trafficking and their children in horrific conditions. Mm. Um, so it's not just, as I say, and I, I think it's really important to, to keep on coming back to this. This is not just the viewpoint of a group that's interested in the rights of ethnic minority citizens. This is mm. a cross-party view. Um, and I think it's clear that even though the government might argue it's a narrow power, um, it's already impacted people um, and it's already impacted people in an unfair way. And if we don't watch it, we don't engage with it, we don't think about it, um, it will continue to do so and potentially in an even worse way. Hmm. So so two, since 2016, you say, this power has been used and it's gone up by over 600%. From 2016 to 2017. Between 2016 and 2017 in, in one, one year. year. Yeah, in do, one year. Do we know what caused that? Is it is it the fact that there are people who are travelling to Syria? Because we know that the government says that there are 900 people who they believe had travelled to, to Syria to join ISIS at the time. Is it odd? Is there... Because I've, I've looked for the data and there isn't mm-hmm. anything on freedom of information about who is being stripped of the citizenship, but there are suggestions that it's always yeah. national security. What, what yeah. do you know about that? It's a really good question. And um, so there have been sort of FOI requests, freedom of information requests that try to piece together um, this picture but we just don't have enough of the transparency of information on this. Um, and what that's one of the things that urgently needs to change um, is that we need more transparency in this process. But unfortunately, what this clause does is it shrouds this process into yet more secrecy yeah. uh, because of the fact that the people who are having their citizenship deprived aren't even being told themselves before um, that that happens. So what does that mean for public record keeping? What does that mean for accountability? We just don't know. Hmm. And for the rule of law. Precisely. What, what, what does that do to Britain, which has um, this reputation of being the country of, of Magna Carta and has this proud record of accepting refugees in this country? Wow. 
and access to justice appears as though it's going to be increasingly will become very difficult what do you think it will to do what will what will it do to people's sense of belonging in this country because as baroness wasi was was arguing in the house of lords during that debate for for the borders bill people feel really scared Yeah, I think there are sort of two parts to that question. The first is, you know, what does it do to Britain's standing uh, in relation to, as you say, tolerance and fairness? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there is a history, there is a history of tolerance in Britain. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we, it's hard to see and hard to kind of recognise. But Britain has been accepting refugees since the Huguenots, you know? I mean, there has been huge influxes of migration and waves of refugees um, who have shaped this country and shaped the course of this country. Um, And the worry is, is that the Nationality and Borders Act itself, this broad-based legal assault on the rights of asylum seekers and refugees, will just make things, will just stop that long history um, and bring an end to what other people see about Britain. You know, this has been a, 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 a law that has been repudiated by international organizations, including the UN itself. You know, it's not something that anyone looks upon uh, lightly, um, especially those working in, in this sector. Um, and it really sends a message. It sends a message about Britain as a country, its tolerance, um, and its engagement with ethnic minority groups. I mean, we can only think to the outcry around the Rwanda announcement as a, as a as a part of that. You know, what country will peddle such an abhorrent and disgraceful proposal, um, in which doubtlessly will kind of resonate to different countries across the world? So it's it's a really it does feel like there is a signal shift. There is something um, that is bringing about uh, a increasingly intolerant view of refugees and migrants coming to this country. Um, the other side of this is, you know, how do ethnic minority people feel? Uh, what, is, what is the, and, you know, you say the Baroness Varsi uh, quote around, uh, you know, around what people, um, how people are reacting to this. And I think it's, as I said, a really, you know, it's the kind of most recent example, most recent manifestation of the continued undermining of ethnic minority rights um, that's been happening over the last uh, years. And I think that it comes with a repudiation of structural racism at the heart of government. You know, let's not forget that the SEAL report that you mentioned earlier uh, was met by widespread outcry of many people who felt really let down that a government sanctioned committee was saying something like that. that. Racism may exist, but it's not institutional. It's not structural. It's not deeply embedded in the fabric of our society. Um, it also comes as part of this broader legislative framework. Um, that I mentioned earlier, Human Rights Act, Elections Act, Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, that also has a really uh, chilling effect um, in terms of speaking out for black and ethnic minority rights. 
And finally, it also comes within a context in which civil society groups, those who are speaking out and campaigning on this, are facing increasingly um, difficulty and challenges in articulating their work. There is a big backlash, and you mentioned the culture wars earlier, mm. um, around uh, sort of cultural narrative issues of identity and race and campaigning and engaging on those issues is becoming increasingly difficult. Um, so it's all within this context that ethnic minority people find themselves in this country. Um, and this act is just the latest uh, to really rock um, a sense of belonging and, and welcome. Goodness. I, I wonder how anybody finds hope after after that impassioned plea about campaigners around the country who who try and and support refugees who who are fighting for minoritized communities whose whose circumstances in this country are increasingly becoming really precarious well what would you say finally alba to to people who listen to this podcast and what what actions they should take amongst their communities and their friends to like raise awareness about these issues? Um, I think the first thing I want to say is that there is hope and that, you know, for someone who is embedded in this work, um, there is still moments of profound joy in relation to the campaigning that's being done up and down the country and the people who have a deep commitment to anti-racist work. And that really, I mean, over the last, last two years um, as a result of Black Lives Matter there has been this rejuvenation of engagement um, from people up and down the country often from places that you wouldn't imagine um, them to have a deep engagement with this Um, and we get contacted by those people very often and that is hugely heartwarming and affirming. Um, You know, there are teachers up and down the country working to diversify their curriculums. There are students who are petitioning their teachers to let them do so. Um, There are grassroots organizations out there working with communities. um, And, you know, within that context, there is there is space for hope. And it's important to say that. And I suppose in terms of for listeners to this podcast um, and how to engage, Um, I think it's really important to engage directly uh, with what's going on. I know that there is a temptation to switch off your TV um, and close off the news. And I have that sometimes too. (laughs) Um, But this is something that really needs urgent attention. And yes, it may seem like it affects hundreds of people only you know which in the grand scale of things we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis what does that really mean Mm -hmm. but what really matters here is what it could do in the future and who it might affect and its symbolic importance as i said at the start its symbolic importance really matters Um, and so i encourage everyone to uh, you know, engage in the campaigns around them on this issue um, and to listen and think about uh, what's really behind the noise, what really matters in relation to something like the Nationality and Borders Act. No, that's that's amazing. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Alba, and thank you thank so much you. for speaking to us. Thanks so much. So as you've heard there from Alba, we're now living in a country where if you're a British citizen but qualify for citizenship of another country, 
which by the way you don't need to have lived in. If the Secretary of State deems that your presence in Britain is no longer conducive to the public good, or in other words not in the public interest, and it is not clear, it's unclear, what wrongdoing you need to have done, it appears on the face of it that you may be stripped of your citizenship. Now, one would have thought that such a power could only be used in, in exceptional circumstances. However, what is clear is that by constructing Clause 9 in the way that this Tory government has done, it is legislating so it can use executive authority and in the process rule by law, but harming the rule of law. As you heard Alba lament, there are numerous remedies in the legal system already. Using citizenship as a blunt instrument is harking back to authoritarianism. Clause 9 will, no doubt, make some people feel like they don't belong here, and as Baroness Wasi said, it will create a tier of second-class citizens. So these are indeed extraordinary times that we're living in. I'm beginning to see a pattern, I don't know if you are. The transportation of refugees to Rwanda, making minorities' rights to citizenship precarious, repealing the Human Rights Act. The direction of travel is seemingly very unpleasant. So to respond to Alba's call for action, please go along to runnymeetrust.org and have a read of their work. It's an entire education that's sadly missing on the school curriculum. Would also be really delighted if you could subscribe and share this episode. So until the next episode of the Still We Rise podcast, thank you so much for listening and goodbye.